You're listening to the Truth and Boots podcast. Join me as we search the Bible for truth about our God, for hope to encourage us through hard trials and struggles, and for answers for anyone who questions our faith. The truth of God's Word is not fragile, impractical, and only used on special occasions like a pair of stiletto heels. God's Word, like a pair of sturdy boots, is meant to be put to work daily and is designed to protect us and help us through the mud, streams, and rocks of life. Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. I am here again with my good friend Jamie Charles and we're here to record part two of her study in Hebrews. I'm excited to learn more about what you have to share with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to jump in to this study. Um, We are gonna be studying the first section, so the first better than. We We learned last week in the introduction that Christ is better than all these different things that he uses to compare him with. And the first one is that Christ is better than the angels. So this is a packed section. Um, I'm sorry about that. Uh, We have to move pretty quickly through this and it's still a long time because it's a really, really packed book. So um, sorry about that. The other disclaimer that I have is I'm not a, a Hebrew or Greek scholar. I actually have never taken a class in the ancient languages. And so this is just me and my Bible and taking time to meditate on it. I did consult some commentaries and listen to some sermons and Bible studies on the book of Hebrews, but for the most part, this is just the result of me getting in and really trying to understand what this passage is saying. So um, don't take me as, as an, any kind of authority, <laughs> but this is just my own meditation on the book. And that's why I'm also so excited to hear what you've learned, because it is a reflection of the, the joy you've had studying this, the, the knowledge you've been able to get out of it. And an example that, you know, just we don't have to have a seminary degree. We can dig into the text yourself and get that kind of inspiration and joy. Yes, yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, this is kind of a passion of mine to <laughs> encourage women to just get in the word themselves. And it is amazing how your eyes will be opened. And I really see the my study through the book of Hebrews as transformational in my relationship with the word of God in general. Okay, so with those disclaimers, let's get into the study of the book of Hebrews. We are going to be starting in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, because in our previous episode we covered the prologue, which was the first few verses of the book. So, just as a reminder, the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And so he starts the book off with two discussions uh, comparing Jesus with something that Old Testament Uh, Israelites, and now we're in the New Testament, so first century Jewish Christians would have highly esteemed um, both of these uh, entities that Christ is being compared to. And so he digs into why is Christ better than, and he starts with the angels. So I'm going to work through um, what his line of reasoning is through this passage, there are a lot of Old Testament passages that he quotes uh, directly in this section. I will 
try to briefly reference those, but if I spent a lot of time going back and, and describing context and everything, that would take the whole episode. And so again, go to the show notes, feel free to even pause as I'm talking to turn back and actually read through some of those passages to get a better feel for it. But I think he picks passages that are pretty obvious in to our minds of why he chose that passage. So it shouldn't take a lot of thought to, um, to follow where he's going with it. So our very first point under this um, comparison of Jesus and the angels is that Jesus has a better name than the angels. So he starts off quoting from Psalm 2. We're familiar with Psalm 2. This is the passage where David says, why do the nations rage, why the heathens rage. Um, and you get the picture of this group of rulers who are plotting against God, but they're also plotting against this character who is called God's anointed. And so God talks about his anointed. He has set up his king on Zion. And in the end of that Psalm in verse seven, he says, he calls him his son. And, um, here. Let me read it it's specifically what he uh, quotes. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this idea of Christ being son of God has more the idea of um, he's the son of a king, right? Like he's the son of God. This is a majestic. This is a ruling um, authority. He is heir. He's the heir, right? Um, but then the second quotation that he takes is from 2 Samuel 7, 14. And this gives us a slightly different feel. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This passage, just a brief context, um, is when David has told God, I want to build a house for you. I want to build a temple. And God comes back to him and says, well, no, actually, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And he's not talking about a physical house. He's talking about David's kingly line. And many of the verses we can see, oh, that he's talking about Solomon. He's referring to, to David's son, Solomon. But as he goes on in the passage, as God continues to speak to David, you realize that cannot be fully fulfilled in Solomon. There are massive promises that Solomon could never fulfill. And we realize that he is speaking prophetically of the Messiah. And so this line, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son, is a warm, it, it shows the more tender side of the relationship that God has to the son. So when we come back to the book of Hebrews, he uses both of these passages, both the kingly, you are my heir, and also the fatherly, you are my son, as um, a way to get us to think, has he ever said that about angels? <laughs> Does he ever talk that way about angels? No, he doesn't. So um, the first way that Jesus is better than the angels is that he has a better name. But second, he has a better position. So uh, like I said, he just goes rapid fire through these Old Testament quotes. So his um, he has a couple passages that he uses as proof text for this better position. And the first is Psalm 45. This is one of the Messianic Psalms, um, exalting the Davidic king. And so he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
And so, I mean, this is just packed. This whole passage is packed, but he's talking about a throne. So the better position that Jesus has than the angels is Jesus is sitting on a throne, right? He is a king. He is ruling. And that is not said of any of the angels. I don't even really have time to go through that whole Old Testament quotation, although it's beautiful. This was one of the questions that I had when I was first going through it. Why doesn't he just stop with that first line? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It seems like that kind of makes his point. But he actually goes on to quote a, a pretty sizable chunk of that passage, ending with, um, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is just a teaser for what's coming up next, I think. I think he wants to to include that idea of this one who is on a throne being compared with his companions. So we'll come back to that thought um, later on in this uh, comparison. Then the, the second passage that he uses to show that the sun has a better position than the angels is from Psalm 110. And I don't know if you remember from last episode, but Psalm 110 is massively important in the book of Hebrews. And so this is our first direct quote of that Psalm. And so um, the quote is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So again, this is the idea that he is at God's right hand and he has the authority and will have everything subjected under him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, angels have never had that promised them. The third way that the son is better than the angels is he has better works than the angels. Um, the works that the author of Hebrews chooses to pull out um, are from Psalm 102, uh, verses 25 through 27. And they're the, the works of creation of everything and then the consummation of everything. This is, Psalm 102 is a long passage and there's a lot to get into there. And it's also not one of the more familiar Psalms. We were, I think, more familiar with Psalm 103 and 104. And, and those are the ones that, you know, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And we love those Psalms. But Psalm 102 is more of a lament, actually. Uh, it's just a meditation on the, the brevity of life, the fact that man's life is fleeting. But it then comes around at the end, the, um, the author of the psalm uses that to launch into a praise of God's eternality. So he says, You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. So it's so he says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. So creation, right? And then at the end, he says, like a robe, you will roll them up. Speaking of the heavens, like a garment, they will be changed. So this is referring to the end of all times when God will make all things new, when God will bring about the consummation of all things. I think the interesting thing about this one is that if I were just reading through the psalm, I wouldn't necessarily have connected it to Christ specifically. He's talking about Yahweh in the psalm. So this is one of those like rabbit trails that my mind goes down of what other psalms am I completely missing that it's actually a messianic psalm, right? That there, that the author of Hebrews says this is Jesus who is 
responsible for the creation and the consummation of all things. Anyway, that's just a rabbit trail <laughs> that um, my mind goes down. So, um, the four, okay, so the first way was he has a better name than the angels. The second, he has a better position on a throne. He has better works than the angels. And the fourth point that he makes, it, it didn't really fit perfectly with my thing. So I said better than awesome creatures because he really wants to emphasize, um, he wants to elevate angels. I think sometimes we can think, you know, when you're making a comparison that that you're putting down the thing being compared to, but actually he wants to elevate angels in order to elevate Christ that much more. I think this is a really important point for modern readers. I don't know about you, but as I'm going through Christ has a better name, he has a better position, he has better works. I'm my thinking is duh. Like I didn't know that that was a question. <laughs> like we don't have the concept of angels in our minds that would even really make this something worth comparing. And I think that there that is that is sad. We have um, a deflated view of angels, possibly because of shows like I don't know if anybody watched Touched by an Angel. I did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have the idea of this very kind British woman who every once in a while a light shines on her head and you realize, oh, she's an angel. Like very warm and tender and um, the cherubs on like the Sistine Chapel. Exactly. Yes. Or like in in Christmas pageants, who always plays the angels, right? The sweet little girls. Yes. It's not the smallest girls because they're the lambs. <laughs> it's like the first through third grade girls, right? <laughs> they're the they come in with the glitter and the gold and the wings and everything, right? And they just sing their little hallelujah. And then that's supposed to be our impression of angels, right? So our current impression of angels is uh, sadly deficient. So the author of Hebrews, I think he's assuming that he's writing into an audience that has a very high esteem of angels, but he still goes on to make some really awesome claims about angels. He says that he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now that in and of itself sounds awesome, but when you put it in the context of the um, Old Testament passage from Psalm 104, it's awesome. It, like, it's just this majestic picture of Yahweh riding his chariot. And of course, angels are the ones who are attending him. Angels in the Bible are called a host. And growing up in um, the King James world, I didn't know what that meant. I just thought it meant a bunch, like a lot of them, <laughs> a host of, of angels. <laughs> um, but I have heard it explained that that actually is referring to an army. Angels are our army. An army of angels um, is who sang to the shepherds that Jesus was going to be born. There are instances in the Bible of angels carrying out God's judgment. That That is one of the main tasks that they have. You have instances where God wants to wipe out 185,000 soldiers in one night, and he uses one angel to do that. Every time 
a person, a human being is confronted with an angel in scripture, he's terrified, right? He's on his knees cowering before this creature and the angel has to say, don't fear. I don't think that Touched by an Angel got it right <laughs> in the way that they portray angels. Let's just, let's just put it that way. Because <laughs> um, I don't usually cower in fear before um, kind British women that I know. <laughs> um, and so I think that we need to use this passage to correct our thinking about angels in order to elevate our thinking of Christ even more. Okay, so now that our understanding of angels has been corrected slightly, um, hopefully massively, <laughs> um, let's get into the last point of how Christ is better than the angels. And this one, I think, will surprise you because it definitely surprised me. And to say it, it sounds like, wait a second, that's backwards. Jesus is better than the angels because of his humanity. Hmm. So let me show you what I mean by that. This this was a passage I just had to soak in this one for a little while because I thought, where is he going with this? But it starts off with a quotation uh, from Psalm 8. Okay, and so I think we need to understand Psalm 8 a little bit. And we know this psalm. I think we're familiar with this psalm. This is the one he starts off, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he says, when I consider the heavens the sun, moon, stars, you just get this picture that he's out on a bright starry night, just in awe of God's creation, right? And we know that feeling. I love the stars, so I, I love to just go out and stare. Then he asks the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him, that you care for him? I think if I were to write the answer to that question, my answer would be, man is just a speck of dust. Man is like nothing compared to you. Man is just you know, here today, gone tomorrow. You, you could squash us like ants. But that's not the way that God answers that question. And even part of the question shows a glimpse of, of what's coming. He says, what is man that you care for him? Right. So you already know that's not going to be his answer. <laughs> he cares for us. But his answer uh, is pretty amazing. He said, you made him for a little while. That's the way that the author of Hebrews has translated this. He's using the Septuagint. Um, so the Hebrew we read in the, the Hebrew for So the Psalm 8 actually says, you made him a little lower than the angels. And then Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. So um, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This idea of you have crowned man with glory and honor. You have put everything in subjection under his feet. We're like, what are you talking about? Mankind? Like, where, when has this happened? Well, the author of Hebrews is telling us, Jesus, Jesus, the Messiah, had to become a man. And passages like this are one of those reasons why the Messiah had to be a human being. But the beautiful thing about it is that it's not only in reference to Jesus. This is not only a messianic promise, but Jesus is a forerunner for his followers 
we are told that we will reign as well. And this passage, chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, sets up a major theme in the book of Hebrews, as well as in the New Testament in general. And it's the idea that suffering leads to glory. And we see that in Christ, our forerunner, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. He became human, a human being with human limitations, a human body. And he suffered immensely when, when he was on this earth. And that led to his glorification. We see this also in Philippians chapter 2, right? Mm -hmm. we, we love this passage that God, uh, that Christ humbled himself became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So here it is again, we see he humbled himself and because of that, God exalted him and everything is going to bow to him. Everything is going to be put under his feet, like the passage in Hebrews which is actually a Psalm 110 reference <clears throat> again. <laughs> but anyway, so it's like, the, it's like the author of Hebrews has been meditating on Psalm 110. Everything's going to be put under his feet. And he thinks, wait, that, that's going to be true of someone else, right? It's going to be true of all mankind. Ding, ding, ding. Jesus became a man. And as our forerunner, he, we see that he suffered and is glorified. We are going to follow in that. And in that way, it kind of makes our suffering comforting, right? Step one is is in process. <laughs> so that means that step two is certain. Mm -hmm. So um, there's another way that this, um, his humanity helps him. And this gets into, I think, a little bit more of where we really, really appreciate the humanity of Jesus. And that is... He identifies with us. He is fully connected to us, flesh and blood, in a way that angels never have been and never could be. And so his humanity means that he is our savior and he is our representative and he is our brother. Um, there are some beautiful passages in chapter 2 um, and I don't have time to get into all of them, but he just, boom, 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 taught three different passages where the Messiah is identifying with the people of God as their brother. Um, and I just think that is a beautiful picture that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters. Um, but then... And of course, we have to um, emphasize this when we're talking about the humanity of Christ. It's the only way that he could die for us. It's really the only way that we could be saved is through the humanity of Jesus. And so that's the next section is going to go on to talk about that he is a conqueror through death. That through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, through death. He delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Um, and then this beautiful way to end the passage. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
Psalm 110 reference. <laughs> he, he keeps keeps pulling it in. He's Don't worry. He's going to go in detail into that later on. But, but we're getting little snippets of it right now. But he is our merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's one to underline, to memorize, to come back to again and again and again. Jesus understands our suffering. His humanity means that he fully understands the pain of being a human being, the limitations of a body, and the suffering that comes through the deterioration of that body. He, he understands it fully. And he is able to help us in our temptation against sin, which is where the end of that passage um, emphasizes. So I skipped a passage. I skipped a section. <laughs> the beginning of chapter two, he um, actually gets into his first warning. So the book of Hebrews is sprinkled with these warning passages. They seem kind of random sometimes, like, whoa, where did that come from? Like, like the discussion on angels. It comes right in the middle of that discussion. But they are not random. They're very strategically placed. And they build an intensity uh, throughout. So the first one's the first one says lightest one. <laughs> so um, Hebrews chapter two, the, the first few verses is where we find the warning. And this warning, he's telling us, don't ignore what the son is saying. So we need to go back a little bit to our prologue. Angels are speak or not angels, um, prophets are speaking to the fathers. But now the son is speaking, right? God is speaking through his son. And so he goes into this passage on angels also to highlight the fact that angels are messengers of God. Angel, God speaks through angels as well, but the son is greater than them. And so um, he does that by saying, we have to pay close attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, by Jesus, and then it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So really, really quickly, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but he says, you believe the message of angels. We see this in the Bible. Lot received a message from angels. Gideon received a message from an angel. Zechariah and Luke 1 received a message from an angel. Like they're, they're familiar with that. God spoke through angels. He says, well, you would take that seriously. You know, those people cower in fear uh, when they're spoken to by an angel. So how much more should we listen to the, the message that's declared through the Son? How much more accountable are we going to be for acting upon the message that is declared by the Son? And he shows this, um, he says that if the, if the message of angels proved to be reliable, how much more is the message of Christ going to be reliable? Um, it made me think of that passage of Zechariah when he's speaking to, to Gabriel and he questions. He says, well, how am I going to know that this is really true? 
And Gabriel's response is, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. Like, <laughs> who are you to question me? Which was a, entirely appropriate. Zechariah was acting in unbelief to question the very word of God that was coming through this angel. But the author of Hebrews is saying, if that was the case for Zechariah, how much more is it the case for us when we receive the direct words of the Son and we act in unbelief? Wow, that is a big warning there. So we've got to wrap this up. We're already at 30 minutes. Um, so let's put this truth that you've taught us, Jamie, into boots. Let's get practical. How do we apply this message to our lives? Okay, well, we can jump off of the, the warning that we just took. Um, the author of Hebrews encourages us, don't ignore what the son is saying. And so my question for you would be, are you hearing what the son is saying? And the way we hear his voice is through his word. Are you regularly exposing yourself to the word of God? Are you placing yourself in the hearing of God's very words? And that can be a challenge for us. And it's one of those things that I feel like we get guilt trips about a lot. And I don't mean to add another guilt trip to you, but there is an urgency to this. God has given us his word and we're going to be responsible for what we do with it, including we're going to be responsible for the fact that we put it on a shelf and didn't open it. Or we're going to be responsible for the fact that we weren't exposing ourselves to the word in a church service. So that is one um, application of the warning for us. Are you exposing yourself to the word of God? And when you are, what are you doing with that? Um, he says, don't neglect it. Don't brush it off. Don't question it like Zechariah did, but accept it as this is the word of God for me. And this is what he wants. And it's important for us to know that because I think often those of us who grew up in Christian homes feel pretty confident in our knowledge of right and wrong or, you know, what God wants, what God says. And so we find ourselves operating off of this vague notion of mm, that doesn't really sound right or yeah that's probably good and that is never going to help us in the midst of temptation right um we have to have god's very clear word that is guiding us and <laughs> screaming at us when we are in the midst of temptation saying no that is wrong or um God's very clear comfort and promises when we are, that's what the book of Hebrews is about. It's addressed to a group of Christians who are wavering. And he's saying, no, don't let go. Don't let go of the promises that God has made for you. And so we need to know those promises very specifically, not just a vague, oh, well, God will probably work all things out eventually. But what has he promised for me today that I can cling to? I would say another practical takeaway would just be meditating on the humanity of Christ and what that means for my salvation. It is so rich and so deep, but even just something simple. One time when I was in college, I smashed my fingernail really, really badly and it was, it was a very severe injury. Obviously it's not life shattering. It's a, it's a fingernail, but it's amazing how much your fingernail affects about your life <laughs> and writing and taking a shower or anything. 
And I remember just being really bummed out by my fingernail injury. And I read, I don't know if it was this passage exactly, but I was meditating on the humanity of Christ and the fact that he went through um, things that we go through. He jammed his finger or he, you know, he was a carpenter. So I'm sure he had some fingernail issues, (laughs) fingernail injuries. So that fact just really comforted me. Jesus knows he's, he's been here. He knows how annoying this is. He knows how it's affecting my life. And obviously that's a small thing, but Jesus lost loved ones. Jesus dealt with extreme hunger and physical, um, physical need. And then of course the agony of the cross, which I can't begin to understand, but he does. And any kind of human agony that we can experience, Jesus understands. Not that he's been through that specific thing, but he has been through the most excruciating agony of separation from the Father on the cross. And he knows. And because of that, he is able to help those who are suffering and being tempted. Well, thank you, Jamie. This has been amazing. And I've been encouraged and learned a lot from you today. So I am looking forward to the next installment. So come back next week. If you want to reference any of the passages that um, Jamie has referred to, go to the show notes. Um, You can also go to truthandboots.com and pull up the episode and there's full details there. And if you missed last episode, go back and listen to that because she gave a great introduction for the book of Hebrews. And if you are wanting to do a study, um, that study guide will be on truthroots.com. So you can read along as we study through the book of Hebrews together. 